Amen. Amen. Good morning. I don't know if you guys noticed, but spring is like so close. I mean, come on. They don't walk in here this morning and it's freezing. What's happening? Pick one. Finally made it. Not just spring. We made it to the end of Judges. Somebody say hallelujah. Man, I feel like I'm just beating y'all up left and right. It's not just y'all. I'm getting, I'm in the trenches with you, right? And so uh, the title of this series is Downward, right? And so if we're ending it, then that means if we start at the top of the toilet bowl, now we're at the bottom. We're hitting the bottom, right? So it's, it's not looking good. Chapters 17 through 21 are basically the lowest point of Israel, maybe in the whole Bible. 17 and 18 are about idolatry, and then 19 to 21 is about sexual immorality on levels of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that's how it's usurped Sodom and Gomorrah, actually. So we're just not even gonna go there, right? Let's just stick with 17 and 18 today, okay? Um, I told you a few weeks ago that I really like titling sermons. And some of you are reading the title of the sermon and going, that sounds really boring. Biblical math? So here's a question I wanna ask you. According to the Bible, what is one plus one? One, two, three hundred. No, way off. Who said it? Somebody get them some candy. One plus one equals one. That doesn't mathematically make any sense, right? That's not how that's supposed to go. Why is it one plus one? Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees who ask a question, is it lawful? To divorce one's wife, he says in Matthew chapter 19, have you not read, which is actually an insult to a Pharisee, did you not even read Genesis? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. So this whole concept of two being one is streaming through the Bible. It's actually incredible. Uh, What God, Jesus says in in his high priestly prayer in John 17 is that this is the goal, that he came to give his life so that we could be unified with him, unified with him, meaning as one. This is the way that he says it in John 17, verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples there. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And so that is our goal as believers is to be unified with the living God, right? That's an incredible reality that we as believers get to experience is the the living God residing in us, directing us, knowing us at a level that we have previously not been known before. But we exist in this fallen nature. So you can, you should understand that anything that he creates can be, uh, what's the word, perverted, right? Uh, so there's this idea. The technical term for it is syncretism. Say syncretism. Maybe I should have put it on the board. <laughs> so syncretism is, uh, is defined as the combining of two different things, okay? Uh, primarily in regards to religion or culture or social ideas. 
So you take something from society and you merge it together with your religion and make it one. If you don't know that you do this, you do now. (laughs) Uh, Every single one of us does this without even thinking about it. There are pieces of our culture that we just assume are part of how God made us. And what our job is to do is to come alongside these ideas and say, how does this weigh up against the scriptural reality of God's word, right? So let me give you just an illustration of syncretism. Brian Mann and I used to play a game while I was at ABI called Smash Up. And it consists of maybe 15 or different decks of cards. And each deck has different powers and identities. Maybe there's pirates and robots or dinosaurs or ninjas, right? And so you pick the ones that you want and you put them together and they create one thing, right? And then the next time you play the game, you pick up whatever you want, put them together, right? And so that's what the challenge of us living in a culture that is different than our religion is that there's a tendency for us to pick up those cultural things and make them part of our religion, make them part of our faith. This is what Paul says we do when we do that, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so now you're just relating a sexual act with an idea, right? I'm saying that's, that's like a, a little bit of a leap, right? I mean, I'm not going around sleeping with prostitutes, hopefully, right? <clears throat> what this is getting at is saying that the desire of your heart is contrary to the identity or unity of God. And you hold that. We hold that on equal level with God, right? And so we're going to dive into chapter 17 and 18, and what it's going to offer us is four examples of syncretism, okay? So I'm going to tell you the story. You try to find who and what they are being synonymous with, and then I'll tell you at the end, okay? We'll go over it. So the story goes like this. Chapter 17 starts out, you meet Micah, and you immediately are thrust into the story of an idolatrous thief. It says that he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Who does that? Who steals money from their mom, right? And then it says that his mom goes around town cursing the person who stole it, even whispering the curse in his ear. So imagine hearing it like this. She walks up behind him and says, I curse the son, I mean the boy, I mean the man, I mean the person who stole my money, right? And so he comes back and he says, Mom, I I took the money. Uh, I have the 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, I'm going to give it back to you. And she goes, blessed you are, my son. I'm going to uh, take this money and dedicate it to the Lord so that you can make an idol, so that you can make a carved image, a metal image. And Micah goes out and creates these images with the money that he stole, who has been dedicated to the Lord, and now resides in his home along with the ephod and other metal images in this shrine that he set up in his house. Micah goes so far as to to set up a son, one of his sons, as a priest over this shrine. Just really weird. And then uh, some time passes and and Micah meets a young man. And the young man is is from Judah. The the young man is a Levite. And he says, what are you doing here? The the Levite says, 
oh, I'm, I'm actually sojourning in this land in order to find a place. I'm a Levite from Judah. And Micah's eyes light up. A Levite? Oh, I will give you a place. I'll give you a yearly salary, all the clothes that you need, and a place to live if you will be my priest. And so he ordains this Levite as a priest over his metal images in his shrine that reside in his home. And Micah says, in verse 13 of chapter 17, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So chapter 18 starts and you meet the last tribe to get some land. Okay, the Danites are the last tribe to settle in the promised land. And they are, uh, they are coming into the land uh, and they send out five spies and those five spies happen to come upon Micah and his home and they hear a voice. That voice sounds familiar. So they seek it out and they find this Levite that resides over the shrine in Micah's house. They say, who are you? What are you doing here? And he tells them his situation. And the spies ask them as they're journeying out to find land, hey, will you beseech the Lord for us and see if we're going about the right way? And I would pose that this is the very wrong person to be asking that, right? And of course, he comes back and says, yeah, the, the, the Lord's with you. Go, go do as you want. And so the spies go out and they, they find this land. It's named Laish. And what they find is this, chapter 18, verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there. Now they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth and how they were, how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So what they find is very favorable land and an unsuspecting people who are far from other people. Sounds like Homer. And so the, the spies go back and they say, hey, we, we found the land. This is it. Let's go get it. Don't wait. The Lord is with us. So they, they go back, they take the same route, and they swing by Micah's house and they say, hey, I got a good idea. Let's go by Micah's house and take those graven images. And so they go and they, they steal the graven images and the Levite turns around and says, hey, what are you doing? Those are, I, what are you? You can't take those. I minister with those here. And they say, why be a, a priest to one man? Come be a priest to a whole tribe. And he goes, oh, that sounds good. So he goes too. <clears throat> Micah comes home and sees all this stuff stolen, gathers up his whole community and chases down the Danites. Says, hey, what, what are you doing? And they turn around and they're like, what? <laughs> What are you talking about? Why are you angry? Why did you bring these people? They're like confused as why someone would be angry with them. He says, you, you stole my idols. I don't have anything left. What are you doing? And they say, this is their response. Do not let your voice be angry among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. You want your idols back? Oh, okay, we'll just kill you all. <laughs> over 200 pieces of silver. So the Danites go and they take the land, take it with ease. They set up shop in Laish and they rename it Dan. And this Levite sets up a new shrine in the new town. And then it's revealed to you who the Levite is. The Levite is Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. You mean to tell me that this guy is the son of Moses, and he's doing exactly the thing that Moses didn't want the people to do in the wilderness? And then the story ends by saying that this town set up this shrine, and the shrine stayed there all the way up until the exile. <laughs> 
the tribe of Dan kept these golden calves all the way up until the exile. That's like two, three hundred years later at least. So the, the end of the story is that God gave them up to these idols. God gave them up to these idols. Now some of you are thinking, I thought rock bottom would be much worse than that. Well, let's keep going. So the first person in the story that I want to draw your attention to is the mom. The story is, is about the mom, but in regards to what we're talking about, I am not directing these torments, uh, comments toward the mothers in the room, okay? So moms tend to want to take up the arrows, right? <laughs> uh, that's not what, what's happening. This is everybody. Everybody does this, okay? Or everybody has the tendency to do this. So what the mom says is, uh, Micah comes up and says, hey, I took the gold. Here it is back. She says, verse, verse 3 of chapter 17, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you allow your son to, to do things that are so... Um, diabolical, if you will. To, to take this money, the, the path is, I'm going to give it to the Lord so that you create an image that you can worship alongside the, the Lord. The reason is, is that the mom is more worried about her family, more concerned about her family than she is what God thinks. I want my family to be happy, right? I do things in order for there to be a, a, a sense of, uh, of unity within my household so that we're not fighting and bickering with each other, right? My son just stole $1,100 from me, 1,100 pieces of silver. And instead of disciplining him about stealing, I praise him for returning it. That's actually very contrary to any biblical response to that situation, right? Is to say, oh, well, what would make you happy? And here's what's happening is she wants to be happy, so she makes her son happy. Remember um, early on when the Lord was, was getting my attention, and I was, I was wrestling through the dreams I had for my life as a, as a 30-year-old man, you know? I had, I had planned out a course for the life that I hoped would take place. And I had communicated that with my family. These, this is where I'm, where I'm going, what I'm doing. This is what I'm, I'm trying to do, right? Trying to become successful uh, in these areas of life. And then I, I came home and I'm discussing them with my parents uh, and I'm, I'm telling them how I'm wrestling them, wrestling with these dreams. And how I'm pretty sure that none of those dreams are going to come true. <laughs> that what the Lord has for me is far superior than anything I could dream up on my own. And my mom's comment was, well, doesn't, doesn't the Lord want you to be happy? Doesn't the Lord want you to be happy? Well, if happiness means that you do whatever you want without God, then no. The Lord's not as concerned with your happiness as he is you being unified with him, you being known by him. And so what the, Micah's mom is doing is similar to what the Pharisees are doing, uh, what, what Jesus calls out. Matthew 23, he says this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a disciple, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So Micah's mom is saying, do whatever makes you happy. And Micah does exactly that, right? Goes out and he makes idols for himself and says, I got it. 
this is, this is great. Jesus talks about the comparison between family and him. It's a very stark contrast. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. This is the way that, the way that you love me should look like hate for what you have for your family. Not that you should actually hate your family, right? That's not what he's saying. Shouldn't actively hate anyone, right? But in comparison to the way that you love the Lord, the love for your family should be, should look like hate. So the greatest thing, one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given is just to witness, to be a part of a child being born in the earth, right? For those of you who have experienced that, it's life-changing, right? It didn't change your life. <laughs> Rob's shaking his head. <laughs> I'm certain it did. <laughs> you know what will be more life-altering than that? Is the day that my kids give their life to the Lord. That's what I'm shooting for. Not just to make a bunch of babies, but to make a bunch of babies who live their whole life dedicated for Christ, who enter into eternity right here before our eyes. The first secretism is placing family alongside God and their happiness. Second one is this, the Levite. The Levite says that he's going to find a place. Uh, verse nine, chapter 17 says, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew, what it says is, uh, this is actually the same Hebrew word, sojourn, I go to sojourn and I go to sojourn. Says, what, what? Doesn't make any sense. You'd use a different word. So that's why they translate it a little bit differently. So what he's doing, he's leaving Judah and he's going to a different land in order to find himself. Uh, this same word is, a, is the word that Adam used when he names all of the animals and he says, none of these match up with what I need. They don't fit the purpose. They're not qualified enough, right? And so what the Levite is doing is exchanging his place uh, for a sense of purpose, right? He's going out to find a sense of purpose. Everybody in this room has probably met someone like this, especially in Homer. You meet this young guy and he says, I just got to Homer. You say, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm on this existential journey to find myself. Uh, okay, why'd you come here? A lot of spiritual things happening here. It's not, it's not happening where, you, where you're from. I mean, look around. It's, this place is beautiful. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come here because it's beautiful. You can find yourself anywhere, you know. Actually, I can tell you the purpose of life. The purpose of your life is to worship the living God. Ah, I don't need that, right? And they go on and they try to find their purpose in all these things. You see that when he... When he uh, he gets there and he's offered a job. And so he's finding his identity along with his religion and what he's doing, right? Micah offers him a job and he bites at it and says, yeah, I'll do that. And then when that's taken away from him, everything is lost. And then it's offered right back to him in chapter 19. Come be a priest for the tribe. I mean, that's way better than a family. In verse 20 he says, and the priest's heart was glad. This is what touches the deepest part of his soul is finding his purpose. Jonathan, the Levite, is exchanging purpose in the one who created him for work he does with his hands. Here's the irony 
of that. Okay, Numbers chapter three says this. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So Jonathan, the Levite, descendant of Moses, exchanges his Levitical role as a priest at the tabernacle for work in Micah's house? That's going way backwards. He didn't have to leave where he was. He was already at the tabernacle. My purpose isn't in what I do, it is who I'm created by, who I'm created for. Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does a clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Think about that for a second. What are we doing? We look at God and we look at ourselves and say, there must be something more. I must be something, I must be created for something more than this. And we exchange what God has created us for finding purpose and meaning in what he also created. That's actually insanity. And so for us as Christians, what is the top priority for us? First Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Jonathan didn't need to go anywhere. He was born a Levite. He was made a Levite by the living God, a priest right where he stood. And if you are in this room and you have accepted Christ, you've confessed that he is the king of your life, then you have a purpose. You are part of a royal priesthood meant to exclude, uh, sorry, exclaim him to the world. That's actually one of the greatest honors that we get to do. Third, let's come back to Micah. So Micah's actually second in the story. Um, in verse five, chapter 18, it says that he has a shrine, a household gods, an ephod, and that he consecrated his son to do these blasphemous things like divination in his own house. Micah's actually the poster child for syncretism. He accumulates all these gods to appease the God that he says he knows. Almost on every level, Micah has it wrong. His devotion isn't to one God, but to many. Even including the ones he created with his own hands. You worship something that you made? Psalms 115, verse four, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who worship them. The road down idol worship leads to, leads to hell, honestly.
So he crafts all these images, steals from his mom in order to maybe, maybe you could, you could argue that, that he stole the money in order to get his mom to make an idol for him. And then he puts his son in there to be a priest. And then he thinks he's got it even better when he recruits this Levite to come and do his will, right? It says in verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. So what's his goal in worshiping the Lord? It's right there on the page. I'm here to get material blessing from this God. You got it all backwards, man. It's devotion to, fir- to the Lord first, and then he takes care of you, right? It's not, hey, I got it right. Now take care of me. The Levites are meant to to bring about repentance in people, not just do their bidding. And so what you're saying right now is, that, okay, so, I mean, how do you just stumble into making an idol? Like, like okay, you can make the argument that like, I was in a tough situation and I lied. You know, like I, I, I slipped up and I lied. But you don't slip up and carve an image right? You don't, you don't accidentally, or you, maybe you could accidentally covet someone's stuff, right? So you could make an argument for that. Not, not really, but like carving an image is like a whole different level of idolatry, right? How do you slip up and do that? It's the second commandment. You sit down and you're on, you have this piece of wood and a knife and start carving, whittling, and all of a sudden it turns into a a moose, and you pray to it? That's insane. No one here is doing that, right? Okay, so what's, what's the application right now for us is that this is not carved images that you place at the center of your heart. It's cultural ideologies that you place on level with your faith So you, you look at your faith and the religion that, that, that Christianity gives to you and you say, that's, that's not actually enough for me. I need to take other pieces from other things or I get rid of certain things of, of God's law or what he says within his word and I replace it with something else. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to get caught up in your culture and think, oh, I, I like that about my culture. This is just part of who we are. And yet, God's saying, that's ah, not who I created you to be. And so what, what's actually happening is we're called to weigh out these things, to come to Scripture and to say, is this really what you say is true? So we pick up these little beliefs you see it in your life when you start to champion that belief or that idea more than you champion Christ, right? This idea is what would make my life better. This is what must happen for the world to turn the corner to be good. So I'll give you an easy one. It's actually not easy. It's actually rather hard. It's the topic of hell itself. Everybody in this room has a hard time with the biblical concept of hell, including me. And I don't mean that I don't believe in it or that it isn't true. I just mean it's a difficult thing to think about. And so because it's hard, I don't want to face up to that. And so it's just much easier for me to say that hell doesn't exist and to pick up some other ideology and replace it with what Christianity says. And yet I still call myself a Christian. I still say that Jesus is king, but I don't believe his word in regards to this truth. We don't mold images, and we also don't mold the God, mold the living God. 
He simply is, and we have to accept him as he is. Last example, the Danites. National religion. Didn't really make sense to say land religion. Although that is kind of what they're doing. The Danites are the last tribe to get any land. And in chapter 18 of Judges, that is what they've devoted their hearts to, is finding a land to settle in. But it's not by accident that they're the last ones. It's actually their fault. So the whole chapter of Judges starts out with God saying, okay, it's time for you to go take possession of the land, right? It's actually exactly what they should have done way back then, right? And so, okay, why is it wrong now for them to go out and, and do that? What's the, what's the catch? Judges chapter one, verse 34 says, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come to the plain. If you go back even further than that, Joshua chapter 3 verse 10 names the Amorites as one of the nations that will fall. You go back even further than that, it's actually promised to Abraham that you will go into the promised land, but the Amorites have not uh, reached the maximum amount of their sin yet. So biblically, we've been waiting a long time for the Amorites to fall, okay? But what happens in, in the passages before verse 34, chapter one, is that five other tribes fail to remove the people in the land. And so by the time the Danites get there, I'm just not, I'm not gonna give you victory anymore. I'm actually gonna let you suffer under these people. So the Danites send out spies. They send out spies to find the land. And the first, the first problem with that is that they, they go to this heretical priest to ask for the Lord's favor. Is the Lord with us? Yeah, sure, go do whatever you want. And then they go to the land, and what do they find? They find a land that is, uh, that is rich and bounty, full of unsuspecting people who have no backup. Their eyes light up. Oh, we got this. We, we're going in and we're gonna massacre all these people and take this city and we will finally have land in this place. Judges 18 verse nine says, they said, arise, let us go up against them for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go and enter in the, in the possession of the land. And as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And there's just a few verses later. It says, and there was no deliverer because it was from Sidon. It was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. So why do they finally commit to taking the land? Because they trust in their own strength. The Lord is with us, but we really got this. We're the strong ones. We're able to wipe them out. Look at them, weak people. They have no backup. Your freedom does not come from the nation in which you reside in. Your freedom does not come from the flag that is planted in the soil in which your feet stand. Neither does eternal peace. 
You don't have to look very far to see that that is very true. First Peter two, again, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Galatians three twenty eight. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you all are one in Christ. What Paul is saying there is that I don't actually need to go out and in my disciple making make someone an American before they become a Christian. I need to go out and no matter what the culture is, introduce them to Christ. Because that is where life is. This is where life will be found. This is where eternal life will be found. Your saving grace is not exchanging nations. You are a holy nation. Meant for something way more than a geographical place on the earth. So track the idol with me. First, mom says, be happy. Micah does as he pleases and is happy. And brings Jonathan, Moses' grandson, into his idol worship. Who takes the idols to an entire tribe which stands until exile. Two to three hundred years later. The end of this story, a few weeks ago, I told you that the most loving thing that God can do is, is to intervene in our situation when, when things are going poorly. When we're off track, God steps in and graciously says, hey, I have something way better for you than that. What happens right here is that he's, I've said that multiple times, and now I'm going to hand you over to your desires. I'm going to leave you with it for a little while, and you see what's better. Me or whatever you want to worship. God gave the Danites up to their sinful desires. I'm going to read Romans 1. I want you to think about the progression that this idol took through Micah to the Danites along with this passage. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with other men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Though they know God's righteousness, God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. About 20 years ago, I would have read that passage and go, look around. I mean, it's not that bad, right? 
Like, things are fine. You hear all these old guys talking about how bad the world's gotten, you know? Like how corrupt it is. And I, in my youth, said, what are you talking about, man? That's fine. It seems fine. I've been around long enough now. Seems like, seems like we're like in, we're towards the end of this triage, right? Of God giving us up to these desires and giving us up again to more desires and then yet again to more desires. What's happening in our world around us is that our culture is fighting over idols just like they did in chapter 18 of Judges. It's saying, I believe this, so I'm going to take it for myself. And I don't care what you say, I'm going to make it happen. What our culture needs is people who are devoted to Christ, not Christ and an agenda, not Christ and politics, not Christ and some ideology, not Christ and anything. What our culture needs is people who are devoted to Christ alone. For people who are willing to take up their cross instead of a cause. One of the things that I've been completely blown away by is that since Chris has been here, the rotation of songs is, he's too far ahead of me to get the songs picked out. So back, back in the day, we'd have more time. I'd pick out the songs and they would sing them, right? And now he's choosing the songs ahead of time. And I'm well aware that the Holy Spirit is at work in him and I because what is happening is he sings a song and I go, how did that happen? That actually just happened. I was sitting right here and I looked at Drew and I said, word for word, word for word. This is a song he just sang. I, had to, I didn't tell Chris anything. Word for word, he's the king. He calls his nations to rise and fall, right? He's, he's the one. Overall, he's the one who, who demands all of our hearts. So here's the goal. Here's what we're, we're shooting for. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. The woman at the well is becoming more and more aware that this is the Messiah, the one to come to save. And Jesus says, hey, look, there's coming a day when you're not going to worship on that mountain, but you're going to worship like this. John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that means that we're full of his spirit and we say the, th the same things that he says are true. That we're not divided among ourselves, within ourselves. I'm not picking up ideologies that I like in order to shape my religion, but I submit to his spirit and speak his truth. That's the goal. That's where we're headed, hopefully. And so before we worship, before we come to God, if there's anything that is on your heart or you feel like, man, I've, I've held onto this for a long time. And I, I see that in scripture, this is, this is not really true, but I want it to be true really bad. Would you come pray with our prayer team in the back? Ask for help, seek out his spirit. It's not new for you to do this. Everybody does it. 
Everybody needs his correction, right? Including me. Father, we ask that uh, we would be true worshipers, that we would be full of your spirit. God, that you would, you would graciously convict us of the things that we are so tightly holding on to you that do not represent you. God, would you, would you refine us? Would you mold us to bear your image instead of us molding you to bear our image? God, would you, would you purify us and cleanse us? Would you make us righteous so that your presence is something that we desire above all else? That you would be the light that we seek and the world would grow dim. That the world would lose its favor. That we would lose our desire for the world and choose you over everything else. In Jesus' name.